My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, June 30th, 2011. Today is officially the three-year anniversary of Pirate Christian Radio. <laughs> Where does the time go? Wow. tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris roseborough and i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god just because somebody you know, claims that they're giving you biblical teaching actually doesn't mean that they're giving you biblical teaching uh, the proof is always in the pudding, and we actually are the uh, one of the few programs in the world uh, willing to uh, check the ingredients in the pudding to see if it's actually biblical in content and nature. <laughs> and now we've been doing this on Pirate Christian Radio for three years. Now, I was just talking with Jeff Schwartz uh, of Issues Etc., and uh, he asked, are you doing anything special for the three-year anniversary of Pirate Christian Radio? And I said, No. <laughs> The, the reason being is is that uh, you know our work continues. Uh, I I consider like birthdays and anniversaries and things like that to, almost to be arbitrary. You know, uh, in the sense that uh, it, it's great to mark milestones like this that we've been on the air for three years. And of course, if you would like to send in a birthday gift, <laughs> and by joining our crew, I will not complain. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, no, uh, yeah, listen, I'll, let me just put it this way. I'll look, just give you a brief, quick thing as to, you know, one of the questions I get on a regular basis is, wh- what is this pirate Christian radio thing? It, it seems contradictory. It doesn't seem like those two go together. Yeah, I, I understand that. Um, and you know, being the fact that I, I have a minor in history, uh, my undergraduate degree is in uh, religious studies and biblical languages, and uh, my uh, my minor was in history. Uh, one of the things I learned in my history classes is is, is that uh, during the uh, <clears throat> during the colonial period, uh, uh, when the, you know Great Britain and France were always duking it out, and Great Britain and Spain were always duking it out regarding colonial issues. And uh, and North America really was still a colony. South America was colonized and stuff like that. Um, there there were there was pirating going on. Well, there's two types of pirates out there. Um, uh, historically, there were the pirates who took it upon themselves to basically be thieves, and and then there was another type of pirate. And these were pirates who actually received from the their monarch what is called a letter of mark. And this is a hunting license. This occurred during times of war. And what it did is it um, a letter of mark made it so that a ship and its captain could legally um, attack and uh, and take if they can win the battle uh, the uh, the merchandise and stuff of you know from uh, ships that are uh, flying the uh, the opposing team's flag. So that that's probably the best way. So uh, the pirate Christian radio is a we're the type of pirates we have a letter of mark and that letter of mark is actually found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 starting at verse 4 let me read to you this uh, letter of mark it says for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but they have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and we take every thought captive to obey christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So that, that's kind of the idea, is, is that we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So uh, it, the, the other thing you could say about pirate stations as a whole is that uh, historically pirate radio stations are those that broadcast outside of a system. Um, when, my, uh, when my parents uh, met in Oxford, England, um, my dad was in the air force and my mom, well, uh, she's, you know, my, my grandparents, uh, my grandmother was, uh, you know, grew up in Germany during world war two, got married to a U.S. soldier. You know, anyway, he, he got, so he was, you know, my mom and my, uh, and my dad met in Oxford, England. And my mom tells me stories about when she was growing up, uh, when they moved to England, how she would listen to a radio station that uh, that had its operations on a, uh, on a on a liberty ship that was parked in the in, in the English Channel, j- you know, just outside of uh, the the boundaries of uh, uh, you know the, the, of Great Britain, so that uh, you know they were a pirate station. They were broadcasting illegally, uh, in in a sense, and so. The idea here is that pirate stations broadcast outside of the system, and many of the things that we say and do here at Pirate Christian Radio um, would make uh, most general managers at uh, Christian radio stations queasy, uh, in fact, flat-out uh, upset. And so, so yeah, they, they're not used to, nor do they like uh, radio content that gets in your face and speaks the truth kind of bluntly and takes on popular Christian people. Uh, because well, that's not politically correct, and and uh, and it's 
has a tendency to, um, well, make the person teaching the false doctrine look bad, and and then, then that causes problems. So anyway, so that's the idea. We have a letter of Mark from Jesus Christ himself to take every thought captive, and where we broadcast outside of the general system. So that's, that's the quick answer as to what Pirate Christian Radio is all about. And uh, thankfully, the Lord has seen fit to make it so that we, we've been able to broadcast now for three years, and we begin our fourth year of broadcasting today. So I'm very excited, very excited. So let's uh, talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I have a Perry Noble update. In fact, um, yeah, but I think over the next week, week and a half worth of broadcasting, um, um, I may have several uh, Perry Noble updates. I just I get that feeling because I'm looking at my research queue, and uh, you know I spend a lot of time researching. I spend a lot of time. Uh, tracking things down, and uh, Scott Kingsolver, he actually uh, left me a tip on my uh, Facebook wall that uh, that Perry Noble had, had said something rather outrageous uh, this last Sunday in his uh, in his sermon, and so I went and checked it out, and who, yeah, he 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 really did say something outrageous. In fact, I'm going to call it the uh, the Perry Noble 2011 sheep beating incident. Um. He, he, <laughs> Sheep beating. Yes, uh, Perry Noble was doing uh, some of that. He was uh, beating some sheep. Anyway, uh, we're going to take a listen to that. Um, I I want uh, this uh, this piece from the uh, from Christianity Today that I keep threatening to get to, uh, entitled "Contemporary Music: The Cultural Medium and the Christian Message." Uh, I'm going to take a look at that today. Uh, I've got an Al Muller update, and uh, what we're going to be doing is um, I'm going to be playing for you audio. From a uh, from a recent uh, well, Albert Muller he he was on the dais at the uh, annual Southern Baptist Convention meeting, and uh, somebody shot a question at him regarding homosexuality, and uh, and Albert Muller fielded the question and answered it beautifully, worth passing along. And then after we listen to that, uh, I'm going to be reading Albert Muller's piece entitled "The Empire State's Moral Revolution." Where he, you know, he has a—it's a great op-ed piece, chiming in on uh, New York State's uh, recent legislation that uh, that basically legalizes gay marriage. And so, uh, and then in our sermon review time during uh, hour number two, um, I've got a pastor. I don't know if I've really reviewed anything from him yet, but his name is Pastor Casey Hennigan, and uh, he's uh, got a church called Key Point Church, and uh, we're going to be listening to his Father's Day sermon entitled. Mighty warrior, um, and uh, now it, if you one of the more bizarre sermon reviews I I did here at fighting I've done here at fighting for the faith uh, was a sermon entitled uh, uh, the warrior, and uh, the 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 kid <laughs> the kid who delivered the sermon sounded like he had escaped from a server room, and uh, and it was that was just one of those weird juxtapositions. This isn't that kind of sermon. A- instead, the reason I picked this sermon it really specifically has to do with the fact that. Um, it, it's a classic example of beginning with your own theology and then going to the Bible to try to make the Bible fit your theology, which is something you don't want to do. In fact, that's that's another way in which people twist the biblical text. Instead, you have to read the uh, biblical texts in context and uh, and let them form your theology. And if your theology contradicts what the Bible says, then your theology has to actually give way. Uh, because your theology at that point is an error and is probably idolatrous. And so, uh, you know, that's what we're going to be doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So, you know, 
make yourself comfortable. It that's I'm telling you, it's a great way to listen to Fighting for the Faith. Kick up your heels if you can. Although if you want, you know, if you want to clean out the stalls of your, you know, if you own horses and you want to clean out the stalls while listening to Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. But keep in mind, this program has been proven to actually decrease productivity. So. Uh, you, you need to keep that in mind. Of course, if you want to enjoy, enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Uh, just keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You don't want to you don't want to abuse that good gift that God has given us. You don't want to be enslaved to a gift. That's kind of silly. And uh, so, anyway, um, without any further ado, let's dive into the program proper. It really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoke, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flower. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, I sell it when I tell it with a scene. All right, that's our uh, Perry Noble update music. Um, yeah, oh, man. <laughs> to kind of give you the groundwork here, Perry Noble was out of town for a few weeks. And while he was gone, we actually, I think we reviewed two of the sermons that were preached while he was out of town. He was in Seattle and in Israel. Um, and he's uh, actually. Uh, preparing a new spring um, trip to uh, Israel, you know, which which is I don't have a problem with that. Israel's a fine place to visit if you can get there, and uh, it, it does help give you kind of geographically a a better feeling for the, uh, where the events in the Bible took place historically. No problem with that whatsoever. Um, but where where we start to run into problems is who it is that he had preaching there at uh, New Spring Church. Uh, the person that he had preaching two of the Sundays was Robert Morris, and we reviewed two of those sermons, and this guy just flat out lied to the folks there at New Spring, saying that your money is cursed. Yeah, it's it's cursed unless you redeem it by giving the very, 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 very absolute first 10% of your money uh, to the church. And if you don't, well, if you don't redeem it, then your your money's cursed. And uh, and so, uh, you know, talk about, you know, <clears throat> a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock. Well, in an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith, I will demonstrate to you using Perry Noble's own words that he actually believes this the gibberish and poppycock that was uh, preached by Robert Morris, but that's for an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, this episode, though, um, in the sermon series entitled "Is It On the Farm?" I, yeah, anyway, um, the last couple of weeks at New Spring have been <laughs> oh hilarious because uh, well, Perry Noble has spent w- weeks now preaching about New Spring Church. I kid you not. Um, and so last week uh, was a sermon entitled Frequently Asked Questions. That'd be FAQ. And, um, well, uh, well, Perry began his um, FAQ sermon 
with this, bur- I mean, this is the sermon time. Uh, keep in mind, this is sermon time at New Spring Church, and uh, Perry now is preaching. Um, yeah, from the on the farm sermon series entitled "Frequently Asked Questions." Here's a frequently asked question that many of the folks there at New Spring uh, ha- you know, wonder about, and 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 asked Perry Noble about, and he decided to take the sermon time to answer. Uh, here, listen in tonight. I'm going to try to answer three questions. So you've got to listen fast. I'm going to try to get through three. And listen, these are, all, these are all legitimate questions that people ask on a semi-frequent basis that we really did feel like needed some time in the service for us to provide a biblical answer. Some of these questions are deeply theological Like this next one, if you want to write this down. Question number two that we're dealing with is why can't I go back into the auditorium when I exit out of the service? Yeah, yes, you heard that right. Uh, Perry Noble uh, dedicated um, some substantial sermon time to answer that burning question. (laughs) Which kind of begs the question, what on earth are you... Talking about it. so if you uh, if you happen to be in Anderson, South Carolina, and uh, you visit New Spring Church like I have a, f- a couple of times, and if you decide to um, well um, you know exit the auditorium, not the sanctuary, but the auditorium, um, and uh, and use the bathroom, you ain't getting back into the auditorium. You know you're stuck, and so I mean you are basically left with two options. You can either hold it and i mean sit there and squirm because when perry preaches he he preaches you know upwards of you know like 55 minutes to an hour that's that's his normal uh, sermon length um so uh, you you got to sit there and squirm or you have to be willing to spend the rest of the service out in the uh, in the New Spring Mall. That's that's about the closest way I can describe it. If you've been to New Spring, um, you know, when you walk in there, you don't want to call it a foyer. That's just <laughs> doesn't sound like it fits at all. But it's like the New Spring Mall. They have a little bookstore. You can buy T-shirts. They have a coffee shop. Uh, it's it's multi-level. I mean, and you know, <laughs> so uh, so you're gonna have to spend the rest of the service in the in the New Spring Mall. Watching the service via uh, big screen television sets and and audio out there, which may, I don't know if they allow you to sit down for that or not, but uh, yeah, because well, whatever Perry's doing, it's too busy, it's too important, too important for it to be interrupted by people who have got to go out and use the restroom. So. So in other words, you're stuck, and uh, the 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 New Spring Ice, the the New Spring Security Task Force will absolutely make sure that if you leave the auditorium to use the restroom, that you do not, under any circumstances, get back in to the sanctuary. So many people had, you know, this was one of those burning theological questions um, that uh, Perry Noble gets asked from time to time. So he uh, decided to answer this during sermon time. Let's hear a little bit more of his answer. It's a legit question. We get it at just about every campus except for, um, there's a couple campuses that we don't have this in place yet, but we're working toward it. But here in Anderson, Greenville, um, and and, and our other campuses, here's here's the deal. Once the preaching begins, you're not allowed to come into the service. Because, and listen, I I know it's a challenge for some, but I want want you to listen to me. And if you feel singled out tonight, 
um, because you were late. Don't feel singled out if, if tonight was the exception. But, but he, here, here's the deal. Here's the deal, okay? There's a way to make sure that you always get into service. Are you listening to me? Get your butt on time to church. Like, like seriously. Like nobody clap because like this is a six o'clock crowd. And listen, it's six a freaking clock. Like weird. The question was, how come if when I leave the service I can't get back in? And now we've changed the subject to um, those who apparently are arriving late. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't aren't those two completely different issues? Like, don't tell me. Like, were you sleeping for real? It's six o'clock. Oh my gosh! Get to church on freaking time. How hard is that? And some people, well, at least I'm here. You know what? You don't have that attitude at a movie theater, do you? You don't roll up in a movie theater 15 minutes late, going, "Well, at least I'm here." In fact, you, you would come to another. You don't roll up into a Broadway play 15 minutes late, going, "Well, at least I'm here." And some of you would push back and say, "Well, this isn't a movie or a Broadway play." I would say you're right. It's more important. It's more important. Now, isn't it just a ton of fun being scolded by <laughs> Perry Noble? It, it gets better, by the way. This, this, uh, the, the 2011 sheep beating incident that you're listening to right now it actually gets worse. Hang on. Now, now, we've had some people say this. Well, the reason I'm not at church on time is because, and, and they think they're doing me a favor by telling me this. See, Pastor. I like your preaching. I just don't like the music we do. I just don't really like the music. And so, because it's not my style. You know what I'm saying? So because the music's not my style, I'm not getting to church on time. And I'm not getting there for the music. I'm getting there for the preaching. What do you think about that? Let me just tell everybody on every campus what I think about that. I think that you officially suck as a human being if that's your, if that's your focus. <laughs> this, this is breathtaking. Serious, uh, <clears throat> Pastor Noble, you um, <clears throat> you you just said to people who attend your church that they officially suck as human beings. Really? Oh, what a tender heart you have! Oh, I can just see Jesus having this attitude with people. Don't you feel that Perry really, truly is reflecting? The love of Jesus Christ here. I mean, don't you want to be more like Jesus, just like Perry is? Yeah, let me back this up again, and uh, here we go. I think that you officially suck as a human being, if that's your if that's your focus. Are we tracking? Because for some reason, you thought the music was about you. How did he do this? I mean, the question was... How come when I leave the service, I can't get back in? Those are people who, their question is, I went, I got here on time. I went to the bathroom and then they wouldn't let me back in. And all of a sudden now it's switched subjects. It switched subjects to people who show up late. And now to this guy who says, hey, listen, I, I show up just for the preaching because I don't particularly care for the music. Now, I don't want to point out the obvious, but I will point it out anyway because I really do want to point it out. Is um, if but have, aren't these seeker-driven churches? Isn't the music they play on purpose in order to make people want to come to church? Um, so at this point, uh, if somebody doesn't like the uh, 
the 20 to 25 minute rock and roll show, including secular cover songs. They don't particularly care for that, and but they like the way Perry preaches. Uh, they decide they're going to show up at the tail end of the rock concert and just hear the message. Well, Perry Noble, if if that's what you're doing, Perry Noble, his opinion of you is that you officially suck as a human being. Yeah, here, let me hear, hear it again. I think that you officially suck as a human being, if that's your if that's your focus. Yeah, wow, that's quite a scolding. So, uh, yeah, I've I've named this the uh, 2011 uh, Perry Noble sheep beating incident, um, and. <laughs> You bad sheep, you suck. How dare you want to not listen to the rock and roll concert? Yeah, apparently that's an unforgivable sin in the seeker-driven movement. Um, but you know, what's funny is, is that uh, th- this statement of Perry's... I think that you officially suck as a human being, if that's your, if that's your focus. Yeah, it sounds a lot like uh, Stephen Furtick's uh, comment that he made a couple weeks ago. You know, a lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid, but um, (laughs) that's the theological explanation for that. So there you go. I mean, uh, you know, if you uh, you know what this reminds me of, I mean, we all have we all know people who've been in these relationships. I don't know what it is. There's there's a particular there's some women who struggle with abusive relationships where, you know, the guy just beats the tar out of, uh, uh, you know, out of this beautiful woman and she stays in the relationship. And when you try to talk sense to her, it's like, why don't you leave that guy? And, and, and it, cause I love him. You know, it, this is the same kind of mentality. I mean, seriously, I mean, do you go to, is the reason why you go to church so that you can get beaten up by your pastor and, and, you know, like, you know, I think that you officially suck as a human being. If that's your if that's your focus. Yeah. So whatever you do, don't complain about the music to Perry Noble, because, uh, you know, it, he'll he'll whip out his golf club. I don't know if he actually plays golf, but, you know, Perry Noble will whip out his golf club and, and start beating on you and and tell you that you sh- that you that you suck. You know, if you uh, don't like the music and Stephen Furtick, I mean, he's the same way. You're just stupid, you know. <sighs> so there you have it. That's the uh, 2011 Perry Noble sheep sheep beating incident. Um, wow. I, I again, I don't know why anyone would put up with this because there are pastors. There are pastors out there who preach and teach the word of God who who believe that the Bible calls them to be shepherds and under-shepherds of the good shepherd, Jesus. And so they feed and care for God's sheep. Rather than beating them over the head and scolding them about the music, uh, you know, and, and forbidding them to come back into the, well, not sanctuary, but, you know, but come back into the building if they use the restroom, um, yeah, you, know, you can. You there are churches out there where the pastor will be happy and to just love you and feed you and care for you and point you to Jesus Christ and crucified for your sins. Tell you about the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus Christ. They won't tell you lies like if you if you don't give the first ten percent of your money to the church, then your then your money is 
this curse. They won't tell you stuff like that. Instead, they'll tell you the truth, and they won't uh, tell you that you suck if you say if you even let on at all that you don't particularly care for the music there at the. <clears throat> Anyway, so again, I I don't I don't know why. I mean, this this is like an abusive husband. This is an abusive pastor here. So, all right, we're up on our uh, first break. If if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. At my email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance and an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop, stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that!
Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be and pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Warning, if your pastor is beating uh, his sheep, you need to find a different church. That's gratuitous sheep beating. Anyway, I need to remind you all. Fighting for the Faith. This is listener-supported radio. And right now we're in the middle of the lean summer months. And, well, <laughs> yeah, true to form, the, the lean summer months. And, uh, well, here's the deal. Our expenses don't disappear during the summer. Um, uh, and uh, I understand that many of you are on vacation and that you, you're traveling and, and this is the time when you're with the kids and things like that. Completely get it. But the reality is, is that we actually still do need your financial support. So if you are not already a member of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Crew, remember we're in the middle of our drive to get 350 new crew members. We have about 150 left to go. So if you haven't already joined our crew, please visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see one of the friendly button that says join our crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And what that does is once we get to our, our goal, it'll guarantee that month after month after month that we're able to make budget so that we can keep keep consistent and current with our bills and continue to uh, to, you know, to meet our expenses and continue to bring this uh, important radio outreach to you. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, uh, since it is our birthday... <laughs> You can do so. Visit our website, click on the uh, the uh, the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here. From the ChristianityToday.com website, headline reads, Contemporary Music, the Cultural Medium, and the Christian Message by D.H. Williams. The subheading for this article is entitled, What Kind of Christians Do Contemporary Services Produce? <laughs> Apparently, codependent sheep uh, beaten, sheep beaten, no kinds. Anyway, D.H. Uh, Williams writes, he says, On a recent Sunday, I found myself visiting a Protestant megachurch. <laughs> 
I've been to a few myself. Anyway, entering the worship center was eerily similar to being ushered down the aisle of a movie theater. Floor lighting, padded chairs, visual effects shown on two large screens, and music over the speaker system. Of course, and then the rock concert starts. A band appeared on stage to begin the service with live music. It was dark, and, and I thought I heard the audience singing along, but it was impossible to tell. And although I was seated in the front row, I sensed that the congregation was almost superfluous to the activity that was going on on stage. As in most forms of entertainment, the audience functioned as passive onlookers, participating only in an unseen, in intensely personal way. While the band played, long lyrics flashed across the two big screens, the words like, Great God, and High figured prominently that the, the musical performance was outstanding, even if the vocabulary was extremely limited. Seven <clears throat> Eleven songs. And if the song was aimed at an emotional response, they were probably successful, but like so much contemporary worship music, they lacked any element of substantive teaching. Immediately after the singing, without any announcement, much less, uh, Paul's words of uh, institution, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 the elements of the Lord's Supper were hurriedly handed around. Again, I was amazed at the blandly efficient nature of this activity. We could have been passing pretzels and soda pop. No one offered any guidance whatsoever on the sharing of this critical ordinance or sacrament. It seemed a strictly vertical encounter between each individual and God. Next came the sermon offered by a capable person who worked very hard to relate while teaching some biblical content. A simple outline appeared on the screen so that we can follow the train of thought. So did the relevant Bible passages, lest anyone could not find them in an actual Bible. I noticed that the illustrations came almost solely from popular movies and from television, and then the service ended as abruptly as it began with a few announcements over the speakers and a cordial thank you to the congregation, no benediction, no closing prayer, not even a person to give it, and the house lights came on, and then it was time to leave. To say that the service was religiously dumbed down, well, that's not quite right. In fact, I wish that there, that were the case, since the goal of comprehension sometimes demands that complex ideas be simplified. No, it, it seemed rather that the presentation aimed at finding a theological and cultural lowest common denominator in order to attract and engage the greatest number of people. As a result, there was no need to be a Christian to understand most everything that was said or sung. While the church leaders rightly want Sunday services to be accessible, they should also be asking about the limits of the strategy. Ironically, a common complaint 20 years ago was that the churches alienated visiting nonbelievers with too much Christian jargon. This was a legitimate criticism, but now it seems the impulse towards accommodating the surrounding culture has pushed churches into making the opposite mistake. Has a passion for inclusiveness diluted churches into supposing that doctrinal or liturgical uh, particularity threatens their mission to a religiously pluralized world? The apostolic and post-apostolic churches, those nearest to the New Testament era, took a different approach. Modeled after the Old Testament, Testament tabernacle, the church was where believers encountered the Holy of Holies. Thus, worship could be open to everyone. The churches of the 3rd and 4th centuries observed what was called the disciplina arcana, the rule or practice of secrecy with regard to worship gatherings. This was to ensure that only baptized Christians partook of the Lord's Supper and confessed the church's creed. 
Hippolytus, a third-century theologian, kept a list of vices and professions that would disqualify one from baptismal eligibility. In a great many churches, the unbaptized, even catechumens preparing for baptism, were dismissed before the church celebrated the Eucharist and confessed its creed. I'm not suggesting that today's churches dismiss the unbaptized in the middle of the worship or prevent non-Christians from walking through the doors. Still, it is instructive to see how the church's welcome to the world was tempered by exclusionary safeguards to its identity and integrity, especially in the early centuries. If anything, the early church's example cautions against tossing around the pearls of the gospel promiscuously, lest these treasures fall into unprepared hands. On this score, Jesus' words are stark. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Failure to preserve the uniqueness of Christian motives, insights, and commitments jeopardizes both the meaning and the holiness of the church's life. I would argue that for far from snobbishness or spiritual elitism, this is a crucial part of the gospel message. Gregory of Nyssa said it well. Theology is not for just anyone. By theology, he meant the creation of a unique Christ-centered spirituality that gradually transforms the mind and heart, one in which deep speaks to deep. Perhaps after witnessing this instance of contemporary worship, I should have simply thanked God for a church that was crowded and very active. Numerically speaking, this was the largest of the large churches in town. No doubt a great many seekers had been attracted for one reason or another, the youth program, the live music, the adult fellowship groups, or the emphasis on missions. But despite this obvious passion for involvement, I found myself struggling with an uncomfortable question. At what cost had this congregation, like others, purchased its sweeping adaptations to contemporary American society? Of course, throughout history, the church has immersed itself within its cultural surroundings in order to present an effective witness. Perhaps there's nothing new in the modern megachurch except elaborate methods of appealing to outsiders. Indeed, method has become very important for such congregations. I've been told that modern worship competes with the sound and visual effects of contemporary entertainment as a way of reaching modern audiences. The argument goes that churches should not be adverse to using secular techniques showcased in popular entertainment artistry and drama in the presentation of the sacred are said to resonate with the younger generations. In this process, however, it seems to me that the church caters to short attention spans and relies heavily on stimulating emotional highs during the service. Instead of facilitating an encounter with the living God, the methods themselves become the overwhelming focus. In a recent Chronicle of Higher Education commentary, Timothy Beale observed that, a, that quote, a hallmark of American evangelicalism, at least since the 1940s, has been its ready willingness to adapt its theological content to new media technologies and popular trends in the entertainment industry. Implicit in that openness is an evangelical counter-declaration to Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is Not the Message. The message or the word transcends whatever media are used to convey it. But in the long run, is the constant evangelical adaptation of the word unwittingly proving McLuhan right? I think so. That is partly why we find so little coherence within and among the various groups and movements and productions that pass as evangelical. At some point, style of presentation affects the substance of Christian identity and teaching, often by blunting its sharper edges. It is probably no accident that many contemporary churches offer a diet 
heavy in biblical images and metaphors, leaving actual biblical theology in short supply. Lest I sound like a grumpy old man complaining about the styles of the new generation, let me say that the congregation I visited ranged in age from young to old. Fashions ran the gamut of formality from suits to jeans. I myself casually casually most Sundays and can appreciate a good bass guitar when I hear it. So I'm not just grumbling about matters of musical or sartorial style. Yes, aesthetics is never mere aesthetics. The media may well override the message or worse, become confused with the message. Tailoring the message to personal styles can easily result in adapting the faith to one's own needs. Instead of allowing the gospel to challenge us, we alter the historic faith to fit the trends of our age. Many contemporary worship leaders recognize this temptation. How would the believer know when this process has gone too far? When is the Christian mission irretrievably compromised by a passion for making the gospel relevant? These are difficult questions, but given the anti-traditionalist posture of many contemporary churches, many of which have jettisoned confessional or theological resources in favor of relevance, it's hard to see what will help them preserve Orthodox Christianity for the long haul. Yeah, let me just chime in here. Yeah, exactly. I don't think they are preserving Orthodox Christianity. And I think that shows up very clearly in the sermon reviews that we do here at Fighting for the Faith. Our consumerist culture has co-opted many churches, creating a mall-like environment marked by splashiness and simplistic messages. When the church becomes essentially a purveyor of religious goods and services, it reinforces the believer's own consumerist habits, allowing him to pick and choose according to taste or functionality. Inhaling from the cultural atmosphere a mania for unlimited choice, churches breathe out as many different programs as possible, looking to accommodate as many different believers as possible. Perhaps unintentionally, this approach treats personal liberty and the inalienable right to choose as the highest goods of life. Ironically, the weight placed on personal experience and freedom from conventional beliefs is reminiscent of early 20th century Protestant liberalism. Updating their theology for modern fashions, the heirs of Schleiermacher and Hegel emphasized the primacy of the individual's experience of God, setting aside complicated issues of doctrine as divisive, latently authoritarian, or just plain irrelevant. Despite many important differences between this sort of liberalism and the contemporary evangelical megachurch, there are striking similarities in their approaches to individual experience, popular culture, and socially uncomfortable doctrines. But the big question remains, in what direction are such churches taking their members? What kind of Christianity will emerge from an overemphasis on appealing to anyone who might attend a church service for any reason? When the Apostle Paul became all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some, 1 Corinthians 9.22, he did not reinvent or reorient the faith of which he said, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. The kind of transformation Paul experienced and tried to ignite in the early church was grounded in a tradition that made Christian faith, hope, and love starting points for the believer's growth. If our post-denominational or post-Protestant era continues to elevate personal freedom of choice, the stability of the church's historical wisdom will be desperately needed. At the very least, the mere entertainment techniques will never substitute the hard work of teaching believers to acquire the divine life of the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit. This kind of life may well entail sacrificing certain pleasures of one's former life, 
or rejecting certain elements of Western culture, and the church that would foster it must have goals that eclipse inclusiveness. By the way, D.H. Williams is a professor of religion and patristics and historical theology at Baylor University. Just want to let you know that it shows great, great op-ed piece by D.H. Williams and uh, worth passing along here. Okay, moving along. Um, this next segment, I've got audio uh, from the recently concluded Southern Baptist uh, Convention. Convention. Um, they, they do an annual convention. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Peter Lumpkin is about to stand up at the convention and fire off a question to uh, at Al Mohler regarding homosexuality. Al Mohler will field the question like a golden glove baseball uh, player and just handle it brilliantly, again, demonstrating why I have such deep respect for Dr. Mueller. Um, he- he- here we go.
Okay, now, let me help you out here. I'm, Peter Lumpkin sounds like he, 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 uh, he he's concerned because Albert Muller has said that the Christian church has lied about homosexuality, okay, and has practiced a form of homophobia, which, you know, the way it's, the way it sounds, it sounds like all of a sudden Albert Muller is, uh, is going squishy on homosexuality. Far from it. Watch his answer. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, w- those pastors out there who are saying, "Well, it's just not God's best for you." Um, th- yeah, their answer isn't God's best. Amen. Right. Exactly. The gospel is the only remedy for sin. Let me say it again. The gospel is the only remedy for sin. Not therapy. The gospel. Not therapy. The gospel. Yep. Watch what he does here. It's brilliant. Okay. 
Right. Oh, brilliant. It, it, absolutely. I, I can't add anything else to that. Just absolutely spot on. Exactly. You know, you read that passage, that so-called clobber passage in 1 Corinthians 6, that, uh, you know, that the, the people who will not inherit the kingdom of God are murderers, adulterers, homosexuals, uh, revilers, which are gossips. Um, you know, the, and the text then says, and such were some of you. It is God calls sinners of all stripes, including homosexual, to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's what the gospel calls us to, to repentance and the forgiveness of sins so that in our pews, in our churches, sitting next to you and sitting next to me should be repentant homosexuals, repentant murderers, repentant gossips, repentant whoremongers, repentant adulterers, repentant liars, repentant thieves. And all of those repentant sinners are there to hear and receive and believe and trust in the forgiveness of their sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Dr. Mueller, straight up, right here. Okay, talking about Dr. Mueller, quick uh, op-ed piece that he recently written, in, that he wrote entitled The Empire State's Moral Revolution, New York State Legalizes Same-Sex Marriage. The legal, social, moral, and political maps of America were redefined last Friday night as the New York State Senate voted 33 to 29 to legalize same-sex marriage in the state. The state assembly had already approved the measure, leaving the Republican-controlled Senate the last battleground on the marriage issue. Shortly after the Senate approved the measure, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the bill into law. It will take effect in July, 30 days after the governor's signature was affixed. It will be difficult to exaggerate the impact of New York's move to legalize same-sex marriage. The statistics tell part of the story. New York State becomes the sixth state to recognize same-sex marriage, but its population is greater than that of of the other five combined. When same-sex marriage is legal in New York next month, fully one in every nine Americans will live in a state or jurisdiction where same-sex marriage is legal. By any measure, this is a massive development in the nation's legal and moral life. Add to this the fact that California, the nation's most populous state, is hanging in the balance as Proposition 8, the constitutional amendment passed by state voters, defining marriage as exclusively the union of a man and a woman, is now an issue before the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco. It arrived at the appellate court after a federal judge in California ruled that Proposition 8 is unconstitutional. If California is added again to the states with the legal same-sex marriage, more than a third of the nation's citizens will live where same-sex marriage is the law of the land. Furthermore, gay rights groups are counting on their New York victory to serve as a momentum builder for similar efforts across the nation. At present, 29 states have constitutional amendments prohibiting same-sex marriage, while another 12 have laws against it. Marriage is expected to be soon on the ballot in Minnesota and North Carolina, where similar constitutional amendments are in development. On the other hand, same-sex marriage advocates intend to focus on the states of Maine and Maryland for renewed efforts toward legalization. One crucial aspect of the New York development is the fact that same-sex marriage was legalized by legislation and not by order of a court. Eventually, an unusual coalition led by Governor Andrew Cuomo and major Republican donors 
push the measure through the Senate, even though Republicans had prevented even a vote on such a measure in recent years. As dusk set in Albany on Friday, the fate of marriage appeared to rest on one Republican senator whose crucial vote would determine the margin for or against the chamber taking the vote. In the end, the measure reached the floor where it passed by a four-vote margin. One of the lessons learned in this sad spectacle is the fact that enough Republican senators changed their position on the issue under intense pressure, thus enabling the passage of the legislation. The same was true for the minority of Democrat senators who had previously voted against the measure. One of these, Carl Kruger, changed his vote because the nephew of the woman Kruger lives with was so outraged over the issue that that he had cut the couple off from an ongoing relationship. I don't need this, the senator told a colleague. It has gotten personal now. Well, of course it has. But what this statement really means is that many Americans, including many in the political class, simply fold their moral convictions when they, con- when they conflict with the lifestyles or convictions of a friend or a relative. Thus far, whenever the people of a state have had their say, marriage has been defended as the union of a man and a woman. Same-sex marriage has been made legal by courts, such as in Iowa and Massachusetts, and by legislatures in some northeastern states. If current trends continue, the American map of marriage will reveal a deep and consequential division between states which recognize same-sex marriage and those who do not. Given the central importance of marriage to our civilization and culture, it is hard to imagine how such a mixed moral landscape can last. Add to this the fact that President Obama has instructed his own attorney general not to defend the Defense of Marriage Act in courts. In the end, it is difficult to know how one can exaggerate the importance of New York's shift on marriage. New York is not merely a highly populous state. It also includes the nation's most significant city in terms of economics, business, and cultural influence. The legalization of same-sex marriage represents nothing less than a moral revolution for what the law allows and recognizes it also approves. Last Friday was a sad day for marriage, and if the advocates of same-sex marriage are right, it was also a sign of things to come. Sober words, good warning. Hey, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. (laughs) 
Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We'll be going down to Lowell, Arkansas for our sermon review today. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via key point church in lowell arkansas pastor casey hennigan presiding the name of the sermon mighty warrior supposedly a father's day sermon Pay close attention to what goes wrong in this one, because this is a common, common mishandling of God's Word. You begin with your own theology, your own ideas, and then you read them into the text, and, uh, and or you find texts that you think that support your theology, and, oh man, train wreckage ensues. Let me uh, kill the music. Let's just dive right into this uh, sermon. <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll need a helmet, duct tape, bendy straws, all that kind of stuff. So here we go. Without any further ado, here is Casey Hennigan and his sermon preached on Father's Day this year, entitled "Mighty Welcome Warrior." To Man Day, where well, we're going to celebrate the masculinity of all us men. Amen. <laughs> no, I can't give an amen. Man Day. You, you, you welcome to Man Day. Yeah, is that like Monday? You know, it's but it's Man Day. Oh man, we got a problem. 
All you men, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to Monday. I don't know why there's a little ring in my microphone. I know they're going to work on it. But I want to welcome those who are watching today by the internet. We're glad you're with us today. Happy Father's Day. And I send out my love to my dad who watches all these. Happy Father's Day to my dad, Hank Kennigan. Come on, y'all give it up for my dad. We love you, dad. I love you so much, dad. If it would not have been for you, I would not be here today. So my heart and my family, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, several years ago... Sister Stacy and I got in one of those heated discussions. Men, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. It was one of those discussions where, where it got heated. And this discussion, it was centered in the washroom by the washing machine. And the heated discussion was, was over the process of washing clothes. Now, let me explain to you and set this story up. This heated discussion, a.k.a. fight. Um, um, there's two ways to wash clothes. There's, there's the right way, and we'll leave that up to you women, and then there's the man way. All right, here's the man way. You, you just grab whatever is there. The objective is, is to get it done, right? You get them done. Get her done. That's your mentality when you go in the washroom. So you grab everything as much as you can. It doesn't matter color, towel, Underwear, it doesn't matter. You slam it in there. You put it in the dry, uh, washing machine. You put whatever kind of soap you can find in large amounts of quantity, okay? Softener, everything. You put it in there, hot or cold. I mean, it just makes you wonder. I mean, already, <laughs> I I think this guy's in hot water with some people in his uh, audience. Um, Yeah, he wouldn't have been in as much hot water if he'd actually started in a biblical text. <laughs> Yeah, notice, where are we starting here? Again, I, yeah, I think we're at the Bill Engvall School of, uh, of uh, Sermonizing, and it begins with a com- you know, stand-up comedy routine. Uh, yeah, that's not where we're supposed to start. Anyway, we're supposed to begin in God's Word. You know, good exegetical sermons actually begin with the biblical text, and then the pastor helps you and guides you into a deeper understanding of what's going on in that biblical text. I... Well, <laughs> Here we get beginning a, f- a fight over laundry techniques. Okay, all right, yeah, great. We really don't care. We want it to be done fast, efficient, and quick. So we press those buttons that tell us how to do that. Once it gets done, we take the clothes out. We don't look and see what clothes is, are, that we put in there to maybe hang one up or maybe soft dry it or delicate. We just jam it in the dryer and we put it on what? High heat. Come on, somebody. Because I want to dry those clothes as quickly as I can. I don't want to hear the dryer running for 72 minutes. Well, that that was my way. And I I, I came to the understanding that my wife didn't like pink clothes that day. I was like, well, I thought all women like pink clothes. I was kind of helping you out. So at the, at the, the end of this heated discussion, she looked at me and she said, Casey, you're such a man. And I thought, well, thank you for recognizing my masculinity. <laughs> I thought she was complimenting me, but actually she, was, she gave me a backhanded compliment. She's like, you're such a, you're such a man. Well, and and I, I didn't understand it, nor will I ever understand it. <laughs> and that day, Stacy came to the conclusion that, sh- that her and I, we don't think the same. 
We don't act the same. We don't respond the same, nor, more importantly, do we wash clothes the same. I mean, it, we are totally different when it comes to life and how we make decisions and how we operate. Take, for example, movies. Take, for example, movies. There's, once again, two kinds of movies. You've got chick flicks, like, like a Sleepless in Seattle, Notebook, anything with, with, a, with Channum Tatum or any, you know, I mean, anything with a guy that's got a six-pack and broad shoulders, that's a chick flick, you know. Then you have the other kind of movies. We call them man movies. Come on, like Titanic. I'm kidding. All right, that's not a man movie. Anything where Leonardo DiCaprio is not a man movie. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Rambo, The Born Identity. I mean, the list goes on and on and on with man movies, okay? And I love going to see these man movies. I love them. Here's my question. Men, do chick flicks inspire you? No, we do it because we know we need to. Now, my wife and I, we enjoy going to see movies. So what we do, we every other movie we get to choose. So whenever it's my turn, I choose whatever movie we go to. Whenever it's her turn, I suffer through the movie she chooses, you know, and act like I like it. <laughs> I, I enjoy them, though. But, but I'm inspired by man movies, and we had those clips of all the man movies out there. Motivational speak, speeches and men challenging the troops. You ever left a man movie and hoped somebody bumped into you? Walking through the... <laughs> bumping to me. Now, men, today when you go get your kids, don't pick a fight in the foyer, all right? And KP kids. My kid's bigger than you. Don't do that, please. But, you know, we get this feeling, this... Really, it's an unrealistic, larger-than-life feeling whenever we leave these man movies and i feel that there's a reason why we feel that sense and and i believe okay notice what he's doing here i feel that there's a reason why we feel that sense this is where the sermon officially jumps the track you're thinking it didn't jump the track already well technically no all of that was just um stand-up comedy interlude if you would now it's jumped the track because now we're we're basically coming up with an epistemology that epistemology has to do with how you know what you know how you know what you know based upon your feelings nothing more than feelings yeah this is not a good way to determine the truth or the importance of something feeling whenever we leave these man movies and i feel that there's a reason why we feel that sense and and i believe i believe that's that's why we like those movies because why because god has created every man with the heart of a warrior okay now there this this is clearly classified now as an unfounded assertion and he's laying it on god god has created every man with a sense of being a quote warrior hmm really um you got any verses that back up this assertion? Now, I'm not saying it's true or not true at this point. It kind of is, doesn't matter. The point is, he didn't get this out of a biblical text. He's not reading a biblical text. In the biblical story, in a biblical narrative, in an epistle, and he, came, he did not come across a verse while he was reading the Bible to his congregation that said, God has put into the hearts of every man the heart of a warrior. I am not familiar with any verse that says that anyway, but we continue. Men, I, I want to I wanna 
teach you today about the heart that you have inside of you and and i want you so now he wants to teach us about the heart that he thinks we all have inside of us and where did he get this information from oh yeah he didn't get it from the bible he just felt that this was important this is what he feels is true this is not what is actually said in the bible this is a big problem you today about the heart that you have inside of you and and i want you to be confident about being the man that god has called you to be all the men say amen, amen. so i'm going to teach you this morning how to be a warrior i want to encourage you to continue yeah right you're going to teach them how to be a warrior really are you going to take them outside and teach them how to swing swords i mean or are you going to give them nunchuck demonstration i mean seriously are you going to are you going to, are you going to take them to boot camp so that they can you know, learn how to uh, to be a real warrior. I mean, I mean, any pastor who claims that he's going to teach you how to be a warrior, you, you might want to um, you, you might want to see if he's well sane, because uh, this is not the job of a pastor. We continue. So I'm going to teach you this morning how to be a warrior. I want to encourage you to continue in the fight because God has designed you, and He has given you the desire on the inside to fight for righteousness. And to fight with, for what you love. <laughs> Notice, at this point in the sermon, apparently God has laid on the heart of everyone how to be a warrior, or wanting to be a warrior, at least a guy. And uh, he hasn't backed this up with any text. And now he, he, we're missing the real thing. Because the scriptures make it clear that all of us are, by nature, dead in trespasses and sins. By nature, there is no human being who wants to fight for righteousness. That's not a, that is not a character quality of manhood, if you would. In fact, this, what he just said is clearly contradicted by the clear teachings of the Word of God. But he's preaching from his feelings. Weird thing for a guy to do, don't you think? Let's continue. And I want to give you three things to help you understand why you were created like you were created in regards to being a warrior. Judges chapter 6, and while you're turning there, if you can, let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us a wis wisdom today beyond who we are as mere men. Lord, I pray that you give us a sense of your faithfulness and your compassion and your grace and your desire to see us as men advance, Father, and be the men that we're called to be. And Lord, let us leave today encouraged from your word. And understand that you love us and you have our best interests in mind. And Lord, I thank you for everything that you're going to do today and every person in this room. And all God's men and women said, amen. Now, ladies, don't you check out. And don't you be pointing at your husband the whole time and say, see, I told you, PC told you so. I mean, don't do that, all right? This is not the time to do that, all right? So you can do that later whenever y'all are eating steaks or whatever. But... And Are you offended yet? <laughs> oh, man. To do that, all right? So you can do that later, whenever y'all are eating steaks or whatever. But in Judges chapter 6, we're, we're talking about a warrior this morning named Gideon. Let me give you a little back history. This was after the Israelites were, were, were set free by the hand of God from Pharaoh. So the Israelites, they, they, they circle the desert for, for 40 years. They, they march across the, uh, the Jordan, they, they start conquering the territory. They start being the warriors that God has called them to be. And then there was a time 
where, where they, they begin to give in to false gods and they begin to turn their back on God. And many, many times it showed the Israelites doing this. And this particular time, they, they turn their back on God. And the Lord, what He does, He hands them over to their enemies. And the enemies that we're going to be studying this morning were the Midianites. And for seven years, the Midianites, they, they, they oppressed and they, they pressured and they stole from the Israelites. In fact, whenever the harvest was ripe, the, 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 the enemies would come in and they would encamp. Now, notice something here. We're getting a synopsis of the story, but he's not really reading it. The only time he's going to read uh, you know, this story or a portion of it is at the relevant verses that he want, that he needs in order to create the illusion that what he's doing is actually preaching a biblical sermon. But he's not. Okay, He's giving us a synopsis here, but he's not actually handling the biblical text exegetically. In fact, uh, quite the opposite. Let's continue. The, the enemies would come in and they would encamp and they would steal all the Israelites' food. Now, men, you know what I'm talking about. The quickest way to a man's heart is through his belly. All right? So think of it in terms of food. They come in and steal all our food. So the men are angry. The women are upset. This is not a good time for the children of God. They would raid their farms, steal their crops. And Scripture says in the beginning of Judges 6 that Israel was reduced to starvation. So they and that's because they sinned against the Lord. They abandoned God and started worshiping false gods. And so now the covenantal uh, punishments are starting to kick in. You, you kind of forgot all of that stuff. Our knees and humble ourselves and crowd to God because it's obvious we cannot fight these enemies of ours. We need God to help us. And we pick up the story. In verse 11 in chapter 6 in Judges, it says this, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon, everyone say Gideon, was threshing wheat in a wine press, watch this, to keep it from the Midianites. Once again, why was he trying to keep it from the Midianites? Because he was hungry and he wanted food. So here he is, Gideon, this man that was created in the image of God, a warrior. Okay, what is, watch what he just did there. Gideon, a man who was created in the image of God, a warrior. Now, the, this text does not say that part of the image of God is that men are warriors. It does not say that. That was created in the image of God, a warrior, he is in fear, he's paralyzed, trembling in fear, trying to keep this food from the Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you. And I want you to underline these two words, mighty warrior. What you should have underlined is the Lord is with you. That's kind of the key thing here. So, but no, no, he's, he's starting off with his own theology. He found a verse that says mighty warriors. Ta-da! See, that means that all men are warriors by nature. The text doesn't say that. It doesn't say it at all. It says that Gideon is a mighty warrior. But hang on, I'll let him go for just a little bit longer, and then we're going to actually read this text. Now take history into account. 
The Israelites are running with fear. Here's this warrior, Gideon. He's in the wine press getting the, the wheat prepared, threshing the wheat. And the Lord calls him mighty warrior, the hero. There he is frozen and paralyzed with fears. He faces his enemy. And, and what's so interesting to me, and really it's encouraging to me, what we find in this story is that Gideon didn't see himself as a mighty warrior. And often I find that with men today. Oh, I can't do that. Okay, now I'm, I'm kind of working on a theory here. The, the purpose-driven pastors out there, they only, they, I swear that they, they have a myopic view of scripture. You know, there, there's a passage, there's passages in the scripture that talk about, um, the importance of doing what you hear God's word say. Okay. Yeah. Even Jesus tells a parable about somebody who looks at his face in a mirror and, and, you know, and doesn't do anything about it as somebody who hears the word of God and doesn't actually obey it. Here's the deal. Not all of scripture is doable. Okay, so the correct way to look at Scripture is is that it teaches us both doctrine and life. Okay, there's things to believe and things to do. There's things to to understand and there's things to apply. Okay, not all of Scripture is flat as far as something to apply. I think these guys, um, what they do is they flattened all of Scripture into something that you've got to do. But the thing is, the story of Gideon is not about something that you do or I do or anything of the sort. In fact, let's uh, let's take a look at the whole story itself. It's not very long. Judges chapter 6, I'm going to start at verse 1. Okay, So the children of Israel are already in the promised land. Uh, uh, you know, Joshua is dead now. And immediately, uh, the next generation coming up after the generation that uh, that, that took the promised land, uh, they, well, they they began being ensnared by the the folks living in the promised land that hadn't been expelled yet, and the people start following after other gods, and we've got some problems. Okay, so Judges chapter one, uh, chapter six, verse one: the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Boy, you could preach almost a whole sermon on that verse. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels not uh, could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out from Egypt 
and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord, this is an appearance of Jesus Christ, came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belongs to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out up from Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? That's the key piece. Okay. Who is it that Gideon is speaking to at this moment? The answer is he's speaking directly face-to-face with Jesus. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus appearing uh, to these people and speaking with them face-to-face. This is the same character that we see uh, in the book of Genesis, the one whom Abraham speaks to regarding um, Sodom and Gomorrah and and tries to bargain with him. If, If I can find only ten righteous people, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? That's the, this is the same character. So this is Jesus, okay? And so the reason why Jesus can say to Gideon that he is a mighty warrior or a mighty man of valor is because he, Jesus, who is God, is the one who is calling Midian and calling him to this vocation of warrior, to love and serve the people of Israel by obeying the voice of God and going out and engaging in a military action against the Midianites in order to release the children of Israel from slavery and bondage to the Midianites, which God had turned them over to because of their sin. This gives us a picture of sin. Sin is slavery. Sin is bondage. Sin leaves us destitute. These are all examples of what happens to us. And this is an example of God um, punishing is probably the right way of putting it, but it's this is God's discipline of those whom he loves, the children of Israel. Anyway, so the important words for do not I send you. So when you, you should see this sounds a lot like what we heard when uh, when the Lord appeared to Moses from the burning bush, right? When Moses basically said, ah, I, I can't speak well. Do I, is it not I who made your mouth? Well, okay, yeah, it, it, but please send somebody else. <laughs> anyway, so this is similar to that, okay? So the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in the in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, 
and you shall strike Midian, the Midianites, as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house, and he prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock, and then pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's terrified because he knows he's seeing God. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. <laughs> Notice the mercy. Notice the peace. Notice how God, how our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is not coming here in condemnation, but coming here and he's offering Gideon, peace. Does not our great God and Savior offer us peace as well? Peace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, given us the message of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. So here, this wonderful name for God, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. That night... The Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold, here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son so that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Why did he do it? Because God told him to. 
Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites called out to follow him. Notice it says that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sent messengers throughout Al Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Notice he doesn't want to act presumptuously. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harad, and the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Morah, in the, in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give, to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel should boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and is trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go out with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps up the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his own home. So God here is, he's whittled it down. This is contrary to any kind of military strategy that anybody would come up. Numbers are important in military units, in military strikes, in military action. But God here doesn't need anybody. But to make it clear that it's his hand that's at work, he's going to win the victory with only 300 soldiers. God is going to win the victory. God is going to win the victory. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Who gave it? God did. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand will be strengthened to go down against the camp. 
So he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore is in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He worshipped. Then he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside of the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch and they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade, against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerahah, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan, and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeeb they killed at the winepress of Zeeb. Then they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now, tell me if this story isn't far more interesting, far more amazing, far more comforting, far more holy and right to be preaching and teaching about than what... Um, Casey Hennigan is preaching about here. He's mangling this text, and he's missing the story in order to tell guys something that's not true about themselves, that God makes all men mighty warriors. There's no passage that says that. And the story about Gideon, the real story, is an amazing story of God's mercy, his grace, his faithfulness, and his peace. It's a story of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and God's mighty hand of deliverance. For in the same way, 
in the same way and even better, that God delivered Israel from the hand of Midian, God delivers you from the, from the hand of Satan. Through his death and his resurrection, he rescues you. He redeems you and he purchases you and he takes your punishment upon himself. And he gives you peace. All of the promises of the gospel are found here in shadow form, if you would. But they all point to the big fulfillment, and that's Jesus Christ and how he sets us free from idolatry, from sin, from death, the devil, and those enemies who would take and rob and steal everything from us. And he sets us free only to lead us into the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, which will soon be revealed when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Hmm. Sad that um, Pastor Casey here doesn't even realize the treasure that he's mishandling at this point. But we continue. That Gideon didn't see himself as a mighty warrior. And often I find that with men today. Oh, I can't do that. There's no way I could do that. There's no way I could live like that. There's no way I could be the man that God has called me to be. And this is exactly the mentality and the mindset of Gideon this day. He, he, he saw himself as a man who failed and it paralyzed him. And let me stop right there and say this about failure. It is man's number one fear, the fear of failing. Do you see the oh, man? I, I don't even see this theme in the in the Gideon text for, for real. I mean, what 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 if I do this for my family and and I say all these things that I'm going to be and they don't happen and I fail and because of our fear of failure we're totally paralyzed. And that was the state of Gideon right here. But here's an encouraging word: God didn't say to Gideon, "You fearful." little puny warrior. He called him a mighty warrior. God saw Gideon how he was going to be. He didn't see Gideon for who he was that day. And I don't know about you, but I like that. And there's been multiple times in my life where I have failed, where I, have done, I did the wrong thing or I said the wrong thing or I responded incorrectly or I wasn't being the man that I, that I know God has called me to be. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Hey, psst, Casey, hey, mighty warrior, come on. And in verse 15, this is Gideon's response. But, but Lord, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? Me? Really? Really. And he goes through the reasons, and he gives him the facts. And the facts were obvious. They, they were real. He wasn't making up these facts. You want me, Gideon, to, to save Israel? First off, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And then, on top of that, I'm the least, I'm the... I'm the weakest of my family. Hey, God, time out. You got the wrong warrior here. You got the wrong man. And here's something you got to understand about being a warrior. Man, you ready? You got to understand that warriors will fail on the road to success. Really? And uh, where was Gideon's big failure on the road to success? You care to elaborate? Man, you ready? 
You got to understand that warriors will fail on the road to success. Warriors will fail on the road to success. And I believe what we have to do, men, is embrace our failure because it is a big... Notice what he said. I think we need to. Why don't you read the text? God's word actually commands you to teach the text, Pastor. I'll speak for myself. I I don't like to fail. I like to be in control because sometimes I think if I'm in control, then then I can handle it. And this is hard to fail. We hate failure. But here's the point I want to make. I believe God will teach us more. Men, listen to me. I believe. I believe God will. You got any verses that are going to make the statement that you're about to make, sir? I don't care what you think or what you feel about God. The question is, what has God revealed about himself in his word? Here's then our long-term success. Somebody say amen right there. There's a scripture in Proverbs. It says, though a righteous man fall, Proverbs 24, 16. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. So here's my question. Think about this. Men, did God discount Gideon? As a failure and write them off and say, man, you have, you have failed. You have failed your wife. You have failed your kids. You have failed your, your convictions. You, you have failed your God-given dream. You have failed. Gideon, you're right. Go on to the back of the line. Did, did God discount Gideon? Absolutely not. In fact, I believe he pointed Gideon out to teach you and me a lesson today. That God will use our failure. He'll use our failure. So here's what he, notice the hermeneutic. I believe God did this with Gideon to show us that he will use our failures. Yeah, um, that's not what the text says at all. In fact, that's completely missing what the text really does say. You and me a lesson today that God will use our failure. He'll use our failure. And I believe that that moment God planted in Gideon a divine resolution, a, di- a divine resolve. And, and this is what I like. I believe that day he gave Gideon, and I'm believing this for some of you in here today, an internal trust to say, God, if that's what you say I am, then so be it. Funny enough, um, when you read the whole story, notice how many times Gideon struggles with doubt. And God doesn't cast him away, but helps his unbelief. Helps his unbelief by the miracle of the flames from the meat, by the miracle of the fleece, and even accommodates his fears and his doubts by saying, if you're still fearful, go to the camp of Midian and listen to what they say, and then your heart will be strengthened. So notice, this guy can make any claims he wants about Gideon. And how was he able to make them? Because he hasn't read the biblical text to the congregation. He only read a couple of verses out of context, gave some brief, somewhat twisted synopsis, and now he's making claims about why the story's there that have nothing to do with why the story's there. And the only way he can get away with that is because he hasn't actually read the story 
to the people in his church. We got a big problem here. There's some serious narcissistic Bible twisting going on. I'm believing this for some of you in here today, an internal trust to say, God, if that's what you say I am, then so be it. I trust. Really? So uh, does you, so the big trust thing, we're going to trust that God says that you're a mighty warrior, but he hasn't said that to you and he hasn't said that to me. He said it to Gideon. In you. Because you know what trust is? Trust is saying, you know what? I know who I am. But better yet, I know who God is and I know what he wants to do in my life. And I'm trusting in you, God, to do that. And that's exactly what Gideon did. Understand God will use your failures, men. I love the scripture in 1 John 1, 9. It says, he who is faithful and just, we're talking about God here, he'll forgive us our sins and what he'll do is purify us from all. Say all. Grace. And you are looking at a man right here who needs the compassion of grace of God every day in my life. Amen. Notice what he did there. Okay. Notice. I mean, here I almost I was tempted to play the gospel nugget sound, but we're not quite hearing the gospel here. Let's read this passage again. Okay. First John chapter one. Um, let's start at verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, this, there's more, way more going on in this verse, this passage, than even, well, Pastor Casey is letting on. The reason why is because he's very carefully selected these particular texts and woven them into into a tapestry of his own theology, rather than letting the theology that's revealed in the Scripture come through and challenge our false theologies. He's taken his false theology and manipulated God's Word to make it appear that God's Word teaches what Casey's false theology is. Every day in my life, amen? Here's the second thing you've got to understand about a warrior is that you must surrender control. Everyone say control. Now, men, say it with me. Control. This is going to go deep, right? I want to encourage you with this one because I believe it could change your life. This is one of the most difficult things for us men to do is to release control. I mean, it is so hard because we as warriors, God designed us to walk and lead and be in control. But yet when God comes to us and says, hey, I want control, we kind of get confused. We're like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm supposed to be the man in charge and I'm supposed to be in, in control. And Gideon says, Lord, if you're with us in verse 13... Why has all this happened to us? And there's, there's an open dialogue going on between him and God, and I love that. And if he did it with Gideon, many... Well, if you really love that, then why aren't you actually, like, you know, letting the Bible teach it? ...between him and God, and I love that. And if he did it with Gideon, many will do it with you today. He will speak to you in the midst of your biggest failure. 
And then, really, um, that's the the passage that he, from judges here doesn't even say anything remotely close to that. So Gideon replied, if the Lord, if you'd have been with us, why did all this happen? In other words, if I would have been in control, we wouldn't be in all this mess. Uh, no, that's ridiculous. That's not what the text says at all. No, he's really, he's asking a valid question of God, you know, because he, if you read the text, like I just did, you'll realize that, uh, he, he, he's, he's juxtapositioning here. Uh, the stories that he heard from the, the the fathers of Israel, the fathers and the grandfathers, the people who preceded uh, Gideon's generation of all the mighty works of the Lord, and yet where where is the Lord? Where has he gone? Because you know now the Israelites are being controlled and in bondage to the Midianites, who are basically a backwater tribe compared to the greatness of the Egyptians. And, you know, he's asking a valid question. But remember how the story starts out in verse 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, that uh, the Israelites had turned away from the Lord and they were worshiping false gods. And this becomes really clear in the fact that, you know, the angel of the Lord commands Gideon to uh, to tear down the altar to Baal and to, uh, and to uh, tear down the Asherah pole and uh, burn it. You get what I'm saying here? What you're saying, Pastor, actually isn't in the text. You're reading something into it that isn't there. Uh, We wouldn't have been in all this mess. And here's the truth. Men, you'll never be in control unless you surrender all control. Did you even read this biblical passage before you wrote the sermon, sir? You surrender all control. I pray the Holy Spirit teaches me how to give up control every day. And it is the principle, one of the principles in the kingdom of God. Jesus said it many, many times. You, you want to be in authority? Then walk under authority. You want to lead? Then get to the bottom and serve. Now, you, you'll never be in control unless you are giving up control, except when it has to do with a remote control. I found a scripture in Hezekiah chapter 12. God has confirmed it. Men should always be in control of the remote control. There is no such thing as a Hezekiah. All right? I made that up. But there's a man law in the bonus room upstairs in the Hennigan's house. When I walk in there, I don't care what Jake and John, I don't care. I don't care if it's the greatest and latest show on Nickelodeon and you've been waiting for two and a half decades to watch it. When I walk in this bonus room, I'm sitting right there in that chair and I'm watching that 52-inch screen TV in high def with the remote control in my hand. All the men said amen. Amen. All right, there you go. So I helped you out a little bit there. (laughs) Let me say it this way. Talking about surrendering control to God... Men, you must be fully, and we hear this all the time. We throw these words around very curiously, in my opinion. Really, I don't think many men today know what this means. And I'm speaking to myself here. You want to give up control and surrender to God? Then be fully devoted to God. Think of it this way. What is your favorite hobby? Law here at this point. Where's the gospel? What have you done with it? Whatever it is, 
watching college football, whatever it is, golf, how devoted are you to that? Then that should be how much more we should be devoted to our God. Fully devoted. I heard a wise... Why don't you tell me the story of Jesus? Why don't you tell me the real story of Gideon? And you know what? Uh, I might actually have some interest in that God. The God you're preaching, I don't really know anything about him except for he demands certain that he just tells me, you know, that if you want if you want to lead, you have to surrender and be at the bottom and serve. Uh, your your God is just the one who pontificates and gives us principles and tells us to obey. Um yeah, the the God of the Bible on the other hand, well, when you actually read the biblical text and preach on them, you find out what an amazing God he is. Hmm. He's he's not like the the god on Mount Olympus who throws thunderbolts at us when we mess up, and uh, and 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 then basically leaves it up to us in our own strength to get us out of our own problem. No, he's the god who acts. He's the god who sets us free. He's the god who liberates. He is the god who brings us peace through his his own blood. Yeah, you know that that's an interesting god. That's one I could really really want to be devoted to. Only because he's regenerated me, though, and given me a new heart. But do you get what I'm saying? Devoted to our God. Fully devoted. I heard a wise man say that many men today are just Christ fans. And they're really not Christ followers. And I want to encourage you today, men. How much you want to bet it was Stephen Furtick? Fan. And I grew up in church being a fan of Christ. I didn't want to go to hell. Who who wants to go to hell? Nobody. But I wanted to do just enough to get by. And I was just merely a fan. Just I was with him in the good and not so much in the bad. And I want to challenge you to be a follower. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus asked Levi, the my most favorite passage in the gospel. Here's Levi, a man who had everything. The world could provide money, position, authority. He was set up for life. Jesus walks by his booth where he's collecting taxes. And with one simple sentence, he said, Levi, I want you to come follow me. Notice the wording there in Luke chapter 5. Go home and read it today in verse 27 and verse 28. It says, Levi, Come, follow me. And then it said, at once he gave... Let me read it for you. I want to make sure you understand this. Verse 28, Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Not just in measure. All right, God, you can have this little part of my life, but, but not this. You can, you can have these finances, but not these. You can have this part of my thought life, but not this. And that's what total control is, is being a follower of Christ. And men, I know it may go against your thinking, but to be in control, you've got to give up control. Here's the third thing you've got to understand about a warrior, is that a warrior, and I hope this encourages you because it really does me. Nothing you've said has encouraged me at all. All the encouragement I've received is really from the biblical text that I took the time to read, but you didn't. Three. And here we see Gideon, the hero of the story, still insecure, still unsure, still paralyzed with fear. And the Lord speaks to him. And men, I believe that's what we need today in America more than ever before. We need men hearing the voice of God. Amen. 
Well, then they need to hear their pastors preach the Bible, you know, actually do exegetical work uh, from the pulpit. You want the people in your congregation to hear the Word of God? You actually need to teach the Scriptures to them in context, Pastor. We need men hearing the voice of God. Amen. Let it be said of you that you have an open dialogue with Jesus. And it's very simple. He wants to speak to you more than you can imagine. But his hands are tied and he's waiting for you to make the first move because poor Jesus, he's utterly powerless against your will. He wants to speak to you more than you can imagine. Judges verse 14 in chapter 6, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength that you have. This is interesting here. Gideon, I want you to go in the strength that you have. And save Israel out of the Midian's hands. Now, I love this question. A little sarcasm, I believe, coming from God here. Am I not sending you? In other words, Gideon, it's in you already. You have been empowered since day one to be the warrior. Now go. Who empowered him? Hmm? It would be God. He has empowered you to go. And he has already put inside of you the strength and the authority and the responsibility to walk that out. You- uh, yeah, um, you're not really handling the text properly here. And the implications that you're coming up with are not actually valid implications of the text. Responsibility to walk that out. You have what it takes in the Garden of Eden. That day, whenever men was created, God gave him and empowered him with two very powerful things. Number one, authority. Um, You are familiar with the fact that Adam and Eve sinned and they rebelled against God and that everybody since then has been born dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Romans 2 and 3 says. That's what Galatians chapter 1, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 says. Um, Man, it's like, does the fall even register in your mind as a significant theological event? Two very powerful things. Number one, authority. You know what authority is? Power. Ability. But not only did God give man authority, but he gave him something else. He gave him the responsibility to walk in that authority. And many times, men today, they just want the authority, but not the responsibility. But it, it go, it do, you can't separate it. All right. So he gave them authority, the power. This sermon is so discombobulated. If you just preach the text, it actually makes sense. You can't separate it. All right. So he gave them authority, the power, and the responsibility. And here's the question I want to ask you, men, as we close up. Will you step up? And many of you have. And I want to encourage you to continue every day. Stepping up for God. Step up for what? I... Will you step up and walk in the authority, the power, and the responsibility that God has empowered you with? Will you? Yeah, but I don't lap up water like a dog. So maybe God hasn't empowered me to do anything like this. God has empowered you with. Will you? I'm going to tell you right now, all you married men, listen to me. You ready? You with me? If you step up, And you walk in the power 
and the authority with responsibility that God has given you, you will not need Viagra. <laughs> what? Seriously? Oh. Not need Viagra. Because <laughs> when you lead like the man that God has called you to be, your wife will melt. I'm telling you the truth right now. I want to encourage you with that. Everybody say amen. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, so take that one out. Yeah, so uh, the ultimate benefit for, you know, uh, for embracing the warrior within you is, is that things will get spicier in the bedroom. Wow, that's quite a perk. Come on. Your life will increase dramatically, every part of your life. When you walk in the authority and the power and the responsibility that God has given you. Single men who want a family one day, who want to be married, you young people. Today, men, be the man that God has called you to be. Step up. Here's the challenge. Every day I wake up and I step up. I got to. Because if I don't step up, I'm stepping to the side or maybe even falling. Understand that God has empowered you to be the man that you need to be. He has empowered you, amen. I love the scripture in Deuteronomy. It says, Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy. Don't give away to panic before them. Here's the promise. And I hope you grab onto this today, man. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. Won't you bow your heads with me? You may be sitting here and say, No, 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 you don't get to pray for us. See, again, so yeah, it's pretty obvious what happened here. The problem is he didn't let the text do the speaking. He had to get in the way of the text. Had to completely convolute it, cover it up, because, well, he wanted to give a mighty warrior sermon on Father's Day. Mm hmm. Which basically means what, you know, if my takeaway from this is that we might not want to do that. We might just want to let the biblical text do what the biblical text does and says for Father's Day. And uh, by the way, Father's Day is not a biblical holiday. This was created by Hallmark. And I'm a father, so I don't care. In fact, I would prefer my pastor not preach a Father's Day sermon on Father's Day. Just, just a note. <sighs> Sad. Yeah. Again, the, you know, the sermon drug a little bit, but you get what you know, what happened here. He didn't actually preach the text. As a result of it, he twisted, mangled it, therapeutized it, and completely missed the point. And the point was Christ. <sighs> Sad. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We truly do depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions, especially during the lean summer months in order to uh, you know, pay our bills. So if you don't already support us financially, visit our website, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and support us. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your gifts and contributions so that we can keep doing what we're doing. So what would you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. 
Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.